the two of us are going to do this presentation, and I thought we'll just briefly introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Vinod Shah. I'm a pediatric surgeon. Currently, I am the chief executive officer of the International Christian Medical and Dental Association, and I'm based in a place called Vellore in South India. Hi, my name is Sunil Gokavi, and I'm a general surgeon by training and currently the um, executive director of an organization called the Emmanuel Hospital Association. Basically, it's an indigenous Christian medical mission that is based in northern India, and we run about 20 hospitals specifically in rural or semi-urban areas because our focus is that on the poor and the marginalized of that area and we believe in holistic care, in being able to propagate the gospel and Christ's love through what we do in these hospitals and through 42 community health projects as well. Okay. <clears throat> the, the topic that was given to us was evangelism in the hospital context. Now, uh, you will see on my slide that it's called... Thank you so much. Uh, you will see on, on my slide that I have called it Mission Hospital, a Transformation Tool. Um, now, I want us to simply move away from the concept of evangelism as a standalone thing. Uh, we want to learn from history. <clears throat> if you look at for example, the Christian work in Africa and in India. What has happened is the, many people have been baptized, churches have been established, but transformation has not happened, which means the worldview has not changed. And uh, with the result that... Uh, the old values continue to exist. Corruption continue to exist. Injustice, suffering, poverty are exactly the same. Trillions and trillions of dollars have been spent in trying to alleviate poverty, but that has not really made a difference. And so uh, what we want to focus on is not simply evangelism. We want to focus on transformation of society where you're not only accepting Christ, but your value systems and your worldview also gets changed. Um, if you look at, for example, if you look at Matthew 28.20, it says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That means God didn't ask us to simply uh, preach the gospel, but to preach Everything that he has commanded, that means the sum total of the gospel, which is what transformation is about. I think Sunil just briefly uh, mentioned the background of our presentation. Uh, uh, we have presenting 30 years of work in Christian medical work in India through 20 hospitals. Uh, it's not what we are saying is not simply theoretical. A lot of it is very practical. Um, <clears throat> and uh, 
EHA is a learning organization, which means we meet each year, we share notes, we talk about what we have done wrong, what we have done right, so that there is learning. And uh, this is what we really want to present to you. Uh, this is a map of the hospitals in India. Uh, there are 20 hospitals and there are roughly 29 community health projects, which means there are rough, uh, about 50 institutions scattered all over the, all over the north of India. And um, they have a variety of services. There is the hospital service. There is the community health service. There are projects. Uh, there are training programs, and then there is uh, Christian medical work. <clears throat> now, the first, uh, I have four important theses about transformation. <clears throat> first of all, is the governance, which means that uh, if you want a hospital to make an impact on the community, the governance should be geared towards that particular impact. Very often, the governance is only worried about the bottom line, the finances. They're worried about numbers and statistics. They don't really care whether there is uh, an impact on the community or not. And so, uh, Unless the, the concept of transformation is embedded in governance, there will be no change. Sooner or later, spiritual ministry and transformation will become redundant. And the governance will simply focus on numbers, patient numbers, income, expenditure, sustainability, and that's all. Um, <clears throat> and the second important thesis is... Uh, there has to be uh, several kinds of training programs geared towards making this transformation possible. Uh, the training requires a budget. And so uh, if it is part of the governance, it's, if it is an intentional part of the institution, then they will allocate a budget for the training. And then uh, they have to be open to partnerships. You know, a mission hospital... It's not really a church-planting body. Uh, and so they have to be willing to work with several other agencies, including the government, to be able to bring about this change. And then they have to address issues of sustainability. Uh, unless the hospital is sustainable, you know, uh, very soon everybody will lose interest in transformation and evangelism and they will be only focused on the finances. Uh, there was a study done. You know, uh, mission hospitals around the world are collapsing. In India, there were uh, close to 1,000 mission hospitals in 1947, and today there are only 200 and odd. And the same is true about uh, mission hospitals around the world. And there was a study commissioned by the World Council of Churches in uh, 1998. And in that study, they found the single most important cause of the failure of mission hospitals was because of bad governance. That means 
they had no vision, they had no set vision, mission, and uh, they were uh, not proactively interested in the welfare of the hospital. <clears throat> now, uh, I just want to invite uh, Dr. Sunil to tell us about um, how important is governance in their transformation strategy. I was at a meeting just about a month ago where there were representatives from different mission hospitals in the country. And the topic was really as to why mission hospitals in India were doing badly. And what came out was they asked me as to why in the midst of this trend of mission hospitals doing quite badly, how it was that the Emmanuel Hospital Association with its 20 hospitals was doing relatively much better. In fact, if we look at statistics and other indicators, um, things were on the up. And that got me thinking. As I went back and looked into it, I thought of a few things that I thought were key in enabling mission hospitals to be sustainable and, in fact, progressive. I think the first thing that came to mind is the fact that a mission hospital running in the name of the Lord needs to have a very clear vision and associated with that values that stem from biblical perspectives that are non-negotiable. And in EHA, this is the um, vision statement that we have adopted for ourselves, that we are a fellowship for transformation through caring, the central theme being transformation. And this is something that we have recurrently taught to everybody who comes to the organization. It has trickled down to all levels of staff. And at every meeting that we have together, this is always the theme around which the work that we have is defined. Not only have we just given an overall vision for uh, the organization as a whole, but we've also boiled it down to saying that why do we run the hospitals that we do? And we were able to say that in the midst of our clinical practice, we are actually expected to be the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the sick and suffering, always with that desire within us. We don't bring about transformation, but certainly we can possess that desire, that prayer within us, that each and every patient we meet, whether it be in the outpatient clinic for just a few minutes or whether we interact with that patient for two weeks while he or she is in the hospital, that we would represent our Lord Jesus just as he was the gospel and that every patient would have the opportunity to hear of and experience the love of God through compassion, at the same time competent and coordinated medical care and the onus upon us as the management of the organization to ensure that our staff also were contented, fulfilled, professionally built up, capacity built, and all of us together desiring to see the change that happens in and around the communities, which is again focused on the aspect and theme of transformation. 
just to give you an example of the seriousness with which uh, we took transformation is that we did a impact study can you study impact of an institution on the community yes you can <clears throat> and so we had worked for 25 years or probably more and uh, we wanted to see if we had made any impact on the community and that would also serve like a baseline and then you can study that maybe 10 years later to see whether the impact had increased or not and so uh, they studied the spiritual impact on the communities how do you study the spiritual impact on the communities there are some indicators that you can use you have any idea for example alcoholism <clears throat> or wife beating uh <clears throat> crime rate you know number of imprisonments or whatever uh, so you know there are indicators which you can use to study impact on communities uh you can study the impact on families you know are of staff families into going into debt uh are they going to church regularly how are the children doing at school so that is another indicator so no you can use indicators to see what kind of impact the institution has made for 25 years so you do that study and then you can repeat the study maybe 5 years later if you want if you have the resources or you can repeat the study 7 years or 10 years later so you will know whether you are actually making progress or not so this is the seriousness with which the organization took transformation <clears throat> um if you go around uh mission hospitals around the world and then if you ask the ceo of a mission hospital what is your vision <clears throat> you know the commonest response would be they would say we want to be the best we want to be the best hospital in this area or in this country or in this province that's what they would say uh but i call this vision level 1 a small vision because this vision is only about yourself it's about your institution it is not about anybody else and this is actually a very small vision but this is actually 90% of the time this is what institutions would say and this is one of the reasons why the institutions don't do well because they are about themselves and when you are only about yourself nothing will happen people are not inspired to join a hospital which simply wants to increase its bottom line and have more buildings christian people will not join such an institution and so uh, they won't have personnel and you know the hospital will sort of collapse <coughs> and then you have institutions that will say uh okay my vision is to reduce the number of uh maternal deaths and infant mortality now that is a better vision it's 
crosses the me boundary, it crosses the institutional boundary, and at least it's about the community outside. So I call that vision level two, good. Uh, and there is the third level where you say, no, I simply don't want to only impact the maternal mortality and the infant mortality. I want to usher in the kingdom of God in this community. I want to bring about change so that it looks like a little heaven. So that is uh, the grand narrative. This is actually our calling uh, to usher in the kingdom of God in the communities we serve. And so if you have this sort of vision, um, you can fail. You will be stumbling along, but you will be trying hard. And people see this and they are challenged and they join. And this is the reason why Sunil was saying the only organization in the whole country that has a lot of staff and that has actually a little bit of a profit while all the other mission hospitals are sort of collapsing. <clears throat> it's because it has the grand narrative as its vision, not just the vision level one or vision level two. <clears throat> And then everything that the mission hospital does is different. It is the same like any other hospital does, but at the same time it is different. For example, it is uh, people outside provide, secular hospitals provide curing. You know, they, they cure a person. A mission hospital heals, and that is healing is about the whole person. It's not simply about... Uh, the body is not simply about the spirit. It's about his circumstances. It's about his context. It's about his financial context. It's about his family. <clears throat> uh, so, mission hospitals heal. Other hospitals cure. Um, other hospitals do training. But the way mission hospitals do training is different. They mentor, they do hands-on, they are willing to empower. That means uh, <clears throat> they want to see the students do better than themselves. That is empowerment. <clears throat> uh, health and development. <clears throat> the secular world does health and development. But a mission hospital does development in a completely different way. <clears throat> uh, the usual model of development is resourcing. You know, you give them. He doesn't have medicines, you give him medicines. He doesn't have a shirt, you give him a shirt. He doesn't have a house, you build a house for him. You know, that is called resourcing. Uh, but Christian development is not about necessarily resourcing. Sometimes you don't need to have any resources to be able to do development. Christian development is about empowering the spirit and helping them to help themselves <clears throat> so that they look into their own community, they look at their own skills and skill sets and do something that becomes sustainable. And so uh, we have, much, we have very many examples of how we 
the development in slums and in villages without necessarily having a lot of money. <clears throat> and when you do development by empowering the spirit and empowering the person, it's very sustainable. Otherwise, it produces what is called dependency. You know, if you keep resourcing, you keep giving and you keep giving and then he wants more and more. He becomes more greedy and then he becomes dependent on you. Very often people like that, you know, they like to feel God. They like to be able to control other people's lives and to be sort of thought of as sort of God. <clears throat> Uh, the Christian understanding of poverty, again, is uh, much wider. It's not simply people who don't have money, but anyone who needs help is, you know, at that point is poor. Uh, anyone who, for example, uh, a drug addict, he may be wealthy, but he is poor. Uh, a wealthy person who is completely ignorant and who is arrogant, you know, he's got poverty of, he, he's spiritually very poor and he needs help. And so our understanding of poverty is uh, wider. <clears throat> the way Christian hospitals practice ethics is again different from the way it is practiced in uh, the world outside. You know, the way ethics is written is by what is called consensus. They have a a, a global conference in Geneva on, let's say, surrogacy. And then they all discuss and discuss and discuss for three days, and then they come out with a consensus. And that is put out as the ethical principle to be followed by, you know, Europe or whatever. Uh, so that is called the consensus method of ethics. But the Christians don't follow a consensus method of ethics. They follow ethics based on biblical values of what is right and wrong uh, according to biblical principles and biblical values. <clears throat> so again, uh, there is radically uh, different kind of ethics. <clears throat> and very often, excellence, excellence is thought of as a lot of equipment lot of technology, a lot of money, <clears throat> that might be so. But excellence is also about relevance. You know, what the community can afford. I mean, you can have a MRI machine, but if you take an MRI machine into a tribal area where nobody can afford it, that is not really excellence. You have to learn perhaps a lot of clinical skills so that, you know, you're able to diagnose without too, many, too much equipment. That is excellence in that particular situation. So our understanding of excellence is, again, different when you work in a mission setup. <clears throat> it's about relevance. Um, we're talking about evangelism, but... Uh, <clears throat> about there is a thing called being there is a thing called implicitly Christian sorry about that uh, <clears throat> implicitly Christian and let me give you an example uh, in India we have the low caste so called 
and the high caste. And uh, in the government hospitals, the low caste people, if they go into the hospital, the watchman himself will create obstacles for the low caste families. They will harass them till they pay some extra money. And then uh, they will not be seen by the doctor in time. They will make them wait a lot. He will not be given proper treatment. And so there is a, and they will not be touched. They don't like, uh, the high caste people don't like to be touched, don't like to touch low caste people. But when they come to a Christian hospital, we would make no distinction. You know, we would put them along with the high caste and the low caste in the same ward. We would touch them. The nurses would do whatever they have to do with all patients. And so when uh, that is being implicitly Christian, you know, we are, we are different. Uh, <clears throat> we talk to patients face to face. Uh, we don't talk down to patients. That is being implicitly Christian, you know. Um, uh, the nurses, doctors often treat nurses shabbily in India. They, there's a power distance in the country, you know. Doctors are there, nurses are there, and the students are right at the bottom. Students can't even ask questions. But in a Christian subculture, that is completely different. Uh, the doctors treat nurses with respect. Students can ask questions, and they, they don't have to be afraid. And so everything is different. So that is what I call being implicitly Christian. People see, that, people see the difference and feel the difference when they come to a Christian hospital. And that has to be there, because if that does not exist, there is no point actually in talking about Christ. <clears throat> Uh, and then explicitly Christian, and there are several strategies, and I'm going to shortly ask Sunil to come and tell us about what all the explicitly Christian things that a hospital is able to do. <clears throat> uh, Sunil. privilege as we have worked in settings like ours to be able to actually minister to people in a holistic way. Um, as you may know, India has, in general, the Indians are spiritually oriented and they would welcome anything that has a spiritual connotation to it. And when they see some aspect of, of what we offer to be more than just the medical care there is generally a sense of acceptance, and not just acceptance, but an eagerness to know what we have to say. And this is an, it's such an encouraging and wonderful opportunity for us to go beyond our medical practice. In some of these pictures, the one at the top left, we have uh, a team from the hospital ministering to those who are waiting to see the doctor in the outpatient clinic. On the right, we have a team going around and praying at the bedside of a patient. And this often brings tears and a sense of deep gratitude as patients realize that they are individually valued. We have a reading room where um, relatives or whoever wants is waiting around 
can come and look at literature and there's always somebody to whom they can ask questions and receive answers. Not only is it with the outside, but even our own staff, as they come, as this fellowship builds through our interaction with each other, we find even staff members giving their lives to the Lord. And here we have an example of four nurses um, being prepared for baptism. We often just take a guitar with us and often uh, it's usually after our clinical meeting in the night that we just go in, sing a couple of songs. We have a box of New Testaments with us. We share the gospel message for about 15-20 minutes and then we distribute the New Testaments. At any given time, we just have a ready audience as we see here. This is the foyer of one of our uh, hospitals. And as soon as we start singing, everybody just drops what they are doing. And we have an audience of anywhere between 50 to 100 people. It is not uncommon for people to come up and in fact ask us, who is this God? I would want to follow this God. And on occasion, right there in the middle of the ward or in the middle of the hospital, we have people praying the prayer of acceptance. Not only in the hospital, but as we do our community work, we, as I said, we have about 42 community projects. We influence about 3.3 million people through them. And as this work is done persistently within the communities, as we interact with people on different levels, we find there is a response. And in fact, this is one of the worshipping groups that has sprung up from one of the villages where our community works. And we have seen lives transformed. Uh, Dr. Shah did talk about, you know, the concept of us being able to work, partner along with others. And we invite missionary agencies who are already working in the area or whom we have a good contact with. And we ask them to come in and help nurture these people. We kind of hand them over, hand these groups over to those who are able to strengthen them as they are involved in the church planting ministry. Not only that, but we also have the privilege of ministering to them in our homes. In fact, the lady who is sitting on the left um, of the screen, on the middle, near the middle, is the one who used to help us at home. And she came to know the Lord. And she knew this other family who was admitted with some problems, and she took the liberty to invite them to our home so that, that's my wife there at the extreme left, so that she could share the message of hope with this family. This is the form of palliative care that's needed in India. This gentleman, his name is Nanhi Das, he had tuberculosis of the spine that went undiagnosed. And this was his condition. I don't think I need to describe it to you. As a result, he gave up all hope. He decided that he would just want to die. He cut off all relationships with his family, refused to eat. And there he was left alone and waiting for death. That's when this team of the palliative care that we had initiated in that village went and visited him. And somehow they convinced him to be able to minister in some way or the other. They went regularly dressing his wounds that were extremely foul-smelling, talking to him, encouraging him along the way. And slowly but surely, his family also came back. 
he was diagnosed to have tuberculosis, he was put on treatment, and he was brought back to a great degree of health. Not only that, but they also pursued the various avenues for him to be able to access government facilities. And through that, he received this um, hand-drawn cycle. And along with that, he was eligible also to start a tea stall, being able to sell tea and snacks to the local people. And that soon became something like a mini family business. And it profited not only the patient, but also his entire family. And all the while, the opportunity to be able to minister to him, not only just through the work that they did with him in helping him, but also bring the message of the Lord Jesus. In fact, some of his family members were the first to accept the Lord. And eventually, so did Nanhidas. There are other examples that may not be always very... Um, something that we'd like to share about. But this is reality. This lady had a problem, a tumor of the eye, and we ministered to her through the teams that went. And her husband was an alcoholic. But somehow he was very resistant. And at one stage, he manhandled her to the extent that the tumor started bleeding and she bled to death. Now, we may not know the result of what happens, but we certainly have the opportunity to be able to minister to all who we believe the Lord brings about in our pathway. If you are running an organization with 1,500 doctors, nurses and staff, <clears throat> you cannot expect that uh, the vision will actually trickle down right to the bottom. And so you should not assume that because you are doing this planning that the whole organization will be actually, they will understand what you are doing. And so you have to do training, regular training. <clears throat> and uh, in EHA, uh, they have partnered with the equivalent of CMDA. It's an organization called EMFI, which is Evangelical Medical Fellowship of India. And they provide leadership training. And a lot of the doctors go through the leadership training. And so the vision is renewed and they are challenged and so on. <clears throat> and they are taught, you know, all these principles, overview of the Bible, life of Christ, spiritual disciplines, vocation and calling, biblical basis of missions, uh, perspective on mission, health and development. So, you know, you have to teach these things proactively on a regular basis. And if you keep doing this, these subjects will keep alive and it will keep growing and the knowledge and understanding will deepen. Uh, and then we also do bedside, uh, we have a bedside training module. Uh, in some of the units they do this. We have to do this because uh, a lot of the doctors that join 
Yeche, they don't come from a, a Christian background. And uh, some of the nurses, for example, uh, they can beat the patient. For example, if a woman doesn't deliver in time, they will be, you know, they will lose their temper and give them a little beating. <clears throat> so also the doctors. And so we have to teach the doctors and get them through some kind of a training. And we had created this bedside training modules about uh, how to greet the patient and privacy and local language and touching and respect for the patient's diagnosis and stuff like that. So, again, there is more training. <clears throat> and then there is the whole person care training. Uh, that is, you know, we are not simply about uh, secular medicine, which is only about doing some things with the body, but we are a Christian organization that is interested in healing, which is about the whole person. And so that training is given. <clears throat> Uh, and then they have mission update conferences uh, where uh, all the staff of one particular region are invited to talk about uh, vision and stewardship and other spiritual disciplines. And so uh, the point of what I'm trying to say is uh, you cannot assume that because you're a Christian organization, everybody will know what needs to be done. It has to be continually taught year after year. <clears throat> and so, um, everything needs to be aligned to this vision. You know, you have a vision and you have a mission. You have a plan, policies, training and evaluation. So, all of these things have to fit in. <clears throat> and then, uh, finally, I want to talk about partnerships. A mission hospital cannot achieve uh, the, its own vision without partnerships. A mission hospital cannot plant churches. It cannot disciple new believers. And so, in EHA, they have partnered with several church planting agencies. Uh, some, some of the biggest ones, in fact, in India. So, they are given space uh, and access to the hospital. For example, Indian Evangelical Mission or Friends Missionary Prayer Band. Those missionaries live nearby, near the hospital. They come into the hospital. They access the patients. They talk to patients about Christ. They follow them up afterwards. And so, you know, we are partnering with mission hospitals to be able to do, take the process of uh, planting churches forward. <coughs> And then uh, we partner with uh, other mission hospitals. You know, they are invited to our annual meetings where they tell us what they have learned and they tell, talk to us about their difficulties and we also do the same. And so we want to be learning <coughs> from each other. And then we also partner with the government. I mention this because very often in Christian circles, Partnering with the government is supposed to be infradic. It's supposed to be bad. It's like, you know, uh, being unequally yoked. Government is a secular body and we are Christian and we should not have anything to do with the government. That sort of understanding was prevalent about, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, but that was wrong. We have to work with the government and support the process of the government. 
Um, Sunil, you think you want to talk to us about the church planting impact? Okay. okay. <clears throat> uh, another thing that we do, for example, in our partnership is to train missionaries who are not medical at all, who are theologians, who have done Bible training. We give them medical training, very basic medical training. And we teach them the use of about uh, 30 or 40 drugs and how to identify common illnesses, you know, scabies and fungal infection and how to treat diarrhea and dehydration and pneumonia and uh, take blood pressure because blood hypertension is very common, how to check uh, urine sugar because diabetes is very common. And so we train missionaries to do health. What that does is it makes the missionary, it gives him more credibility in his village. Uh, when, you know, before they would say, oh, this fellow has come to talk about his God again. What a headache. Now they would say, oh, wow, call him, you know, we want our blood pressure checked. Uh, and so the guy has access. And so, you know, and then, of course, uh, they become closer friends and relationship develops. And because there is a relationship, it's easier to talk about the gospel. And so, uh, about what EHA has done is, they have invested in training of trainers. They sent a bunch of nurses who were trained to train missionaries. So, close to about more than about 1,000 missionaries in India have been trained by the, the, you know, some of the staff in EHA. So in the length and breadth of the country, they have trained missionaries to do health. And so you can imagine how they have empowered the missionaries to actually do their work. Here is a missionary who is actually a, a, a Bible scholar, but, you know, he is taking blood pressure of this old lady. <coughs> Uh, and then we partner with uh, CMFs or the CMDA, you know, the equivalent of CMDA in India. And they talk about our hospitals and challenge them to join. And so, you know, it helps our recruitment process. And so we get doctors through them because, you know, they talk about our work in their annual con conferences and their regional con conferences. And then uh, we also partner with the government. You know, the government insurance program. Um, the government in India has an insurance program for people below the poverty line. That means if your income is below this, then the government will pay X amount of money for your treatment. And our hospitals, we, we uh, enrolled ourselves for this particular program. And so a lot of the poor now come to us before we had to treat them free of cost. Now the government is paying for their treatment. So this is the advantage of being partnering with the government. And then we also train government doctors in family medicine and develop their capacity. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> uh, all the time, you have to be uh, sustainable. You know, uh, this is not the time to talk about financial sustainability, but... Uh, Unless you are financially sustainable, you cannot continue to do what you want to do. 
And I believe that if you have your vision and mission right, lots of people will join. And because you have lots of doctors and nurses, lots of patients will come because, you know, you have a vision. And, of course, it will solve your financial problem. And so uh, that is the presentation. Uh, we have lots of time for questions. Uh, and if you're not going to ask questions, I'm going to ask you some questions based on this presentation. But first, let me give you an opportunity. <coughs> available to them, but due to corruption and other reasons are not made available. 
And so we encourage them to be in groups, teach them how to help themselves rather than just handouts. You had said at the beginning of the presentation that evangelism truly involves both the demonstration and the proclamation of the gospel. Would you be willing to just talk a little bit more about how that's manifested in a Christian medical hospital? Okay. Um, First of all, uh, let me tell you how only evangelism and uh, proclamation plays out. Uh, the northeast of India is uh, Christian, ninety <clears throat> percent. Uh, but we have severe tribal warfare between the Christian tribes. Uh, corruption levels are extremely high, and uh, there is a lot of poverty. And so, uh, you know, you wonder how. How can, how can they mix, you know, how can so much corruption and so much violence, how does that go well with uh, 90% Christianity? And the reason is that there was only the proclamation. There was no demonstration. They have not seen, there, there has been no role modeling of the gospel. And so demonstration actually means uh, not only talking but demonstrating, for example, uh, treating a patient with respect is a demonstration. It is not, it's not, uh, obviously it's not evangelism, but when a patient comes, when you say, uh, good morning, please sit down, you know, uh, how are you today, can you tell me what your problem is? Now that is radically different from when he goes to a government hospital where uh, he's sort of pushed in and say, quickly, tell me what is your problem, you know. And even as he's talking, they write the prescription. So he sees the difference and he sees the demonstration. That is a very small example of uh, how uh, Christian hospitals can do demonstration. It, it doesn't take uh, too much because, you know, the other, other end of the spectrum is so bad, a uh, little kindness goes a very long way, so... <clears throat> Want to say uh, just a little bit more, probably, um, you know, I think it, it's a matter of the mind. It needs to start within our minds and hearts that we want to be the mouthpiece and the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus. And so when we go with that sensitivity, the Lord opens out ways by which we are able to share, even in the midst of a busy outpatient clinic. There's sometimes when we are felt led to talk and stop and pray with the patient or share a little bit of the gospel, or give a verse to that person, and for which they are so grateful. So I think uh, we do that in the wards, we do it all over the place. Very sick patients, sometimes we, whom we have given up hope on, we gather a team together, we go and pray over that patient, and it's not um, just a few instances, it's more than that, where we see the miraculous power of God at work, which is evident to even the relatives and their friends. Perhaps I'll give you one more example. Uh, a patient uh, has been seen and then um, he misses the bus. There is the only last bus left. He can't go back to his village because there is no bus after 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And so 
if the doctor knows that, he will say, okay, you won't find a bus, you want to stay here for the night, you can go tomorrow morning. So, you know, that is, again, uh, going outside your actually job description to actually help a patient. That is a demonstration. <clears throat> yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> in Christian Medical College Velo, uh, they have an unwritten rule, which is not written down in the Constitution. It's not written down anywhere. And the rule is that no department will have more than 50% staff as non-Christians. Uh, Non-Christians suspect that there is a policy like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and sometimes they resent it. But at the same time, some of them appreciate it because they, they think, yes, you know, they're able to maintain good standards. And why not? Because, you know, if people who don't appreciate these things and go against it, it will destroy the institution. So that is happening. And the Christians are continuously rejuvenated and helped and retreats and stuff like that. So as long as you have a core that is very strong, it will maintain a, a, a Christian value system. They will not actually become Christians, the others, but they will, they will like the system which has got discipline, which has got ethics, which has got work ethic, you know, and so they love that. And so they will, they will play ball. <clears throat> That's called uh, co-belligerence. That means no government is perfectly Christian. There is no country in the world where the government is Christian. But some aspect of the government policy is in line with what you want to do. And so you partner with that particular part. That is called co-belligerence. That means you are not embracing the government. But, you know, you're saying, okay, the government wants to help the refugees or the migrants. For example, Germany has got 800,000 migrants and they've invited them and they want to care for them. And you also want to care for them. So you partner with that, the Ministry of Migration or something and you help them along. But you're not, you know, accepting all the policies of Germany. But, you know, you're playing ball with that particular thing. So... <clears throat> Was there a question there? Okay. Matt, I just had a functional question. So when you train these missionaries, the pastors in uh, health care, yeah. uh, do you uh, do that over kind of a week or two or a month, or is it a longitudinal process? And then how do you maintain or uh, ascertain ongoing quality? It's a one-year program. Uh, it's a one-year program. A lot of it is done uh, online. But they come to the hospital for one month in a year, 
uh, at the beginning and one month at the end. So actually two months they are actually in the hospital. And then they have a, a kit with drugs. And then they are connected with a mobile phone to a missionary doctor. So uh, sometimes if they have a problem, they talk to the doctor. And they, if they want to prescribe an antibiotic, which they cannot, they SMS the antibiotic to the doctor, and the doctor approves it on SMS, and he prescribes that drug. So, the last question, I think the time is up. Outside the country, nothing. We have hardly any staff from outside the country. It's mostly uh, Indian staff. And um, I used to work in the largest of our hospitals, which is the Duncan Hospital with about 250 beds. Um, we just had a nurse who helped us with research and a physiotherapist who had started the um, community-based rehabilitation work, but since she had handed it over to an Indian colleague, um, and I guess that's about it. We just had uh, two or three people who helped us. No doctors. Okay, thank you all uh, for patiently listening to us. And uh, bye.